The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is just one of the offshore accumulation. <clears throat> the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is just one of the offshore accumulation zones of plastic waste. It's 1.6 million square kilometers big. That's the size of Texas. It's estimated to contain approximately 80,000 tons of plastic. This is a stark reminder of the impact that we've had on our planet, but it's also a big source of valuable reusable material. Our guest today is brand guy Richard Shirtcliffe, the co-CEO of NoHo, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand making beautiful, dynamic furniture from waste plastic, sustainable materials. NoHo's first product is the extraordinary NoHo Move Chair, created in New Zealand by sister company Formway. It is made up from upcycled waste plastic, like discarded fishing nets and end-of-life carpet and is designed to bring dynamic ergonomic comfort into the family home. Prior to NoHo, Richard was the CEO of Coffee Supreme International, Tuatara Brewing before that, and over his career, he's been involved with several successful growth New Zealand companies, such as Phil and Ted's, Mountain Buggy, ProRack, Icebreaker, and Method Recycling, to name a few. So here to talk to us about building disruptive triple bottom line consumer lifestyle brands, finding unmet needs, and outside of the box thinking, welcome Richard. Hey Oliver, it's a pleasure. Lovely to be here. Well, yeah, be here digitally, not not uh, not physically. Yeah. So I mean, you're you're based in in Boulder, Colorado. How are you coping over there with the chaos going on at the moment? Wow. Yeah, it couldn't hardly get any worse, could it? I mean, it really is like living through real life bonfire of the vanities at the moment. I mean, it's truly tragic in in every possible way. We had the we had. I mean, it's bad enough having. Trump, but now we've got COVID, and on top of that, Trump has managed to open up a Pandora's box. But I, I you know, it really is incredibly sad. But it is a moment. It really is a moment um, for the world. You know, these things that are happening right now over here have been bubbling away for hundreds of years over here, and uh, they're not getting addressed, and they need to. So um, it's a bit of a know, reckoning, and um, it really is. Time. It really is. Yeah. But you, you're coping all right there. Yeah, look, we're, uh, we're we're lucky to be where we are. We're in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and Boulder's a, um, a a pretty quiet little little town in Colorado, and it's safe and and it's very progressive in its thinking by American standards. So a lot of people are talking and marching and what have you, but you know we're not in the middle of the bonfire like a lot of the, the cities are. Yeah, right. Good to hear. So tell tell me a, a bit more about NoHo. How how did it come to be? What's the backstory here? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, look, it's a, it was a series of things, in, in fairness. The real essence of it started uh, long before I got involved, in fact. So there's a, a fabulous company in Wellington, Formway, Formway Design, which has been operating for a number of decades and particularly over the last two decades has led the charge in pioneering uh, extraordinary ergonomic performance furniture for the office environment. And, you know, the lion's share of the best sellers for brands like Knoll, which is the biggest furniture brand over here, have been designed by Formway. But um, a bunch of years ago, a couple of the key uh, designers there, also co-CEOs of the studio, Kent Parker and Paul Wilkinson, started to wonder why it is that, you know, we go to the office and we have this extraordinary ergonomic furniture, which does, does good things for supporting our physiology. But in our home life, the same cannot be said. So frequently we're sitting on, you know, very static furniture, which does bad things for our for our physical health. And they started wondering what it would look like if you could take that dynamic ergonomics from the office and bring it into the into the home space. 
I think we've all had a bit of a taste of that recently, working from home. <laughs> well, you know, it couldn't be more pertinent. And, you know, the, the reality is that what we've been going through over the last few months has really brought home the, the reality of modern living, which is that, you know, where in our parents' generation, they had a dining table or a kitchen table, and it was used specifically for dining. In our generation, everything happens around that hub of the home. You know, we, we eat there, we socialize there, the kids do homework there, craft there. And now increasingly, we're working from home there. And all of those activities demand different postures and therefore demand different supports from the seating. So the, the time is, is right for furniture around that hub of the home to, to really support the way, in fact, courage, encourage us to move while we're, while we're seated. So look, that was the that was the design inspiration uh, a bunch of years ago, and they began working on that, you know, really, really hard for about three or four years. My involvement was was a, a later one. I I got involved in in 2018 because I have a good friend, an old sparring partner, uh, Richard Cutfield, who's a, a director of of Formway, and he'd been encouraging me to get involved with this project, saying, look, we've got this extraordinary chair, it's extraordinary design, it's groundbreaking, it's revolutionary, and you know we're, we're trying to f- figure out how to take it to market. I had recently um, left Coffee Supreme and gone on a uh, on a little mini sabbatical, if you like, to uh, to Indonesia with my wife and children. And while we were there, we were teaching the kids to surf, and we just were blown away by the volume of plastic washing around the kids. And it really troubled us. And we spent the next couple of months whilst there, pondering, you know, how you could address that particular issue. And one of the things that occurred to me was that if you can create value out of that waste in some way then you can incent the removal of it from the ocean and, and stop the, the uh, injection of it into landfill and what have you. It's only one part of a complex matrix of approaches, but it is but, but it is a valued part. So yeah, getting back to New Zealand, I you know, connected again with Richard and, and we started talking about not just taking this amazing chair, the normal move chair to market, but actually building a brand which stood for doing extraordinary things for the planet and extraordinary things for users' well-being. Uh, and those are really the two, tw- the twin pillars that we've built the brand on and taken it to market with. Very cool. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I was in Hawaii with the ocean plastic, and it's hard not to sit there thinking, how do we do something about this? And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like using the waste in valuable ways is a really key part of the puzzle. So what made you choose Boulder to base the Noho business? Yeah, well, again, it was a sort of interesting confluence of events and thinking. I mean, we, we wanted... Well, we concluded that we wanted this to be a direct-to-customer business, in part because we think that's a way in which businesses from Aotearoa can genuinely compete in the world without getting margin eroded, in part because we wanted to, as part of our philosophy, design extraordinary things with a tremendous amount of inherent value in them, but deliver it to customers at an accessible price point. And you can only really do that if you're going direct-to-customer. So we decided that it was going to be an e-commerce business. And you know, at that time, Allbirds was really hitting its straps. So we looked at that playbook and thought that's a great way to go. And when you talk to Tim about that, it's clear that the thinking is, well, if you're going to compete as an e-commerce business, then you really want to go to the to the two biggest e-commerce business markets in the world. And one is America and the other is China. And sadly, I don't speak Mandarin. So America it was. And uh so why Boulder? Well, we, you know, we wanted to base ourselves somewhere in the States. The more we thought about what that meant, the more I was determined that it needed to be a place that, so far as possible, matched the kind of outdoor living that we enjoy in New Zealand and 
was values aligned, if you like. Uh, I certainly didn't want to land in the middle of a highly Republican voting area because I would have just been in arguments every single day of the week. Um, so, so you know, we, we surfed around. And, and look, years ago, I was involved with Phil and Ted's and my colleague there, Jace Crow, set Phil and Ted's USA up in Fort Collins, which is in Colorado, just up the road. So I, I knew Colorado a bit. And we have good friends from New Zealand living, living here. And as luck would have it, we've managed to find a place to live, which is about 100 metres away from them in a lovely little suburb. So there are lots of good reasons to come here. Um, and uh, so here we are. Yeah, you talk about the values. And one of the big things of yours is the triple bottom line. For, for the listeners out there who might not know what that is, can you sum it up in one sentence? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in my mind, it is, it's the three P's, right? It's planet, people and profit. And in actionable terms, it means giving at least equal weight to your impact on people and the planet as you do on profit, ideally more weight. And um, yeah, that's it. Where's your sentence, Oliver? Does that, does that did I get a pass mark for that? <laughs> I like to throw a challenge in here occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I passed. That was good. Going back to the NoHo chair, it's made from recycled carpet and old fishing nets. What else is special about the chair? Uh, look, it's got an extraordinary sustainability story, and you've highlighted it there. And, and, you know, that element of it, I think, captures people's imagination. You know, you say that you're sitting on this extraordinary chair that once was uh, end-of-life carpet and, and fishing net removed from the ocean, and that really captures their imagination. And, you know, in brand terms, I think it captures them in the heart, which is absolutely right, because it's a, we're trying to build a brand that does exactly that. But in functional terms, I think the design story is more extraordinary. So effectively, what the designers at Formway have done is a remarkable feat. They've taken the lion's share of that extraordinary performance in an office chair, and they've baked it into a chair which looks beautiful and doesn't have any of the knobs and, and twirls and accoutrement that the office chairs have that make them look so ugly. You know, whilst it doesn't have some of the bells and whistles of an office chair, such as height adjustability, it is designed for the 80th percentile in the adult population. And it is, when you get underneath its hood, remarkable in the way it works. So it, it's designed to rock back and forwards to encourage and support movement of any user. It's designed to flex, so it flexes back and it flexes side to side and it flexes at the, particularly at the front edge, which means that there are no pressure points on a sitter's physiology when they're sitting in it. And it achieves that by uh, patented tech. It's got a, that the shell, the seat shell itself is what's called an auxetic pattern. And that is remarkable in an engineering sense because it flexes in all four ways at once. So it's compliant to essentially any physiology. So it's a remarkable piece of design, which I think will go down in history as a, a, yeah. a turning point in the way people think about how to build functionality into beauty. This is a beautiful chair. And just looking at the videos on the website, the way that it flexes, that's incredible how, how that's been achieved with, with one, you know, one molded. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there are, there's more cleverness beyond that too, even in the way that consideration has been given for how to make the chair shippable in a space and therefore energy efficient way. So it's all packaged in recycled non -re and recyclable materials. The legs, it ships with the legs off, so you only have to click the, um, the legs on. That's all you've got to do when you pull it out of the box. If I was a, a student of product design, industrial design, I would look at this with awe and say, um, how can I change the world by creating design as, as extraordinary and well thought through as this? Can you buy it in New Zealand? You can now. What a great question to ask, Oliver, and I thank you for it. 
You can, yes. We've just actually launched in New Zealand. We were delayed launching in Aotearoa, unfortunately, because of uh, lockdown. The, so the factory was closed. But thanks to the extraordinary leadership of Jacinda Ardern and Ash Bloomfield and co, that New Zealand's opened up again. So the factory's opened up again. So we are now live in New Zealand at www.noho.co, N-O-H-O.co. Fantastic. So when you're making a product out of waste stream, what are the, some of the challenges with that? I, I imagine that it might be quite difficult to get a consistent and reliable supply of that material. Can you talk a bit to that? Yeah, look, I think that's more of a question for the design engineers, but I can tell you at a high level some of the things that we've had to consider. I mean, you're quite right that there's plastic and then there's plastic. A lot of people talk about the fact that you know plastic is a disaster. Really, it's a design issue. It's the way we've been using plastic that is the problem. Plastic in of itself, and I talk about plastic in its all-encompassing sense, so not just petrochem-based plastics, but plastics born of biopolymers, is an extraordinary material, but it does have a hierarchy. And at the top of the hierarchy is nylon 6, which is what fishing nets and industrial carpet tends to be made from. And not far below that is, is polypropylene, which itself has a hierarchy, but those two polymers offer extraordinary benefits in the sense that they are endlessly recyclable. So you can continue to use them. You can create a circular product that can be once it's you know finished being used or if indeed it breaks and what have you, God forbid, it can be recycled back into something else. But importantly, it can be upcycled too. Whereas some of the lesser plastics, PETs and what have you, progressively degrade under salt and solar and what have you and can only really be downcycled. Or indeed, they wash around the ocean and dematerialize into microplastics, which uh, you know wind up at the bottom of the ocean and feed fish, which is the, the, the problem we really must resolve. But you've got to try and find a good source of this stuff. There are places in the world, which I don't need to talk about, and particularly that where you can have the wool pulled over your eyes. So it was very important to us that we found a quality assured supply. And I think it should be really important to anybody wanting to use recycled material. You've got to be absolutely certain that it genuinely is post-consumer or post-industrial material that you're that you are reusing. And going through that process, we um, connected. In fact, the, the designers Kent and Paul connected with a company in Italy called Aquafil, which has been pioneering the process of gathering end-of-life carpet and fishing net and depolymerizing it down to its raw state, which is nylon six and turning that into a material that they have branded EcoNil. And because you can trace that process through them, the ISO certified, it's a quality assured source of the product. So we've opted to work with those guys and it's been a great partnership. It's more costly, of course, going through that using virgin plastic, but way less costly for the earth. Absolutely. It's, it's, um, we need more companies like this that are, are mining this waste product and turning it into really good quality usable raw material and partnerships like that are so valuable yeah they are and it's not as if there's a lack of margin in it despite the extra cost that you face i think this is one of the fallacies of sustainability people who are not in the know are fond of thinking well it must be way more expensive it's too expensive i've got to give up too much profit to be able to run a business with sustainable credentials and nothing could be further from the truth in fact increasingly customers are speaking with their wallets and saying we're only going to back companies that have excellent sustainable credentials and so they should it's absolutely possible to make a very profitable business out of these kinds of values and determinations to be sustainable so do you think there might still be a lot of business um, leaders out there who disagree with it oh unquestionably i, I keep meeting them <laughs> yeah um, so, so what do we say then? Well, how do we <laughs> How do we um, get them to change that mindset and start adopting, um, you know, triple bottom line and more planet-friendly business models? 
Well, I think that you could talk to those people who are non-believers, and that sounds awfully ecclesiastical, doesn't it? But I mean, if you talk to those who are non-believers in climate change, for example, you can talk to them until you're blue in the face with all sorts of entirely valid statistics. Science. Science, yeah. And, and they just won't fall into line. So I think you could waste a lot of time and energy trying to persuade business leaders that don't believe in the power of sustainability or triple bottom line that it's a good thing to do. I think in the end, they will fall into line or their businesses will dissolve before their very eyes because of customer action. And as I said before, we're seeing it over here, seeing it in New Zealand, we're seeing it globally. Increasingly, customers are speaking with their wallets and saying, we are going to go with those brands that demonstrate their determination to do the right thing by people on planet. So I think in the end, that's what that's what will persuade um, companies to fall into line and think about how do you blend sustainability into commerciality. Yeah. Over your time, you've been involved with some pretty iconic New Zealand brands. And I imagine you have some good stories to tell. What, what are some of your highlights? <laughs> good stories to tell. Well, you've always got good stories to tell in any business, I think. Yeah, look, most of them are probably not appropriate for to be aired. But, oh, look, I've, I, I mean, I, it's not for the faint-hearted working for growth or startup businesses. You know, the, the defining factor in the end tends to be grit determination, tenacity, rather than pure inspiration. And oftentimes, people who run these businesses, like me, <laughs> aren't, aren't easy to work with. So I've had a lot of pretty hard-bitten experience working for some Kiwi entrepreneurs over the years. But equally, you know, it hasn't always, never very comfortable, but it was, I, I learned a tremendous amount. You know, I, I some, sometimes I learned what I didn't want to do in the future by watching it. Oftentimes I learned what I ought to do. But I think one of the key lessons for me working for businesses like Icebreaker and Phil and Ted's and what have you was that New Zealand might be down the bottom of the world and have this tyranny of distance issue. But we have great thinkers, great creativity and and great design. And we have the ability to design extraordinary solutions for the world. And when we do it and we take it to the world, the world is wowed by it. And we have this wonderful ability to tell stories. I think we've got that in spades in New Zealand. So that was something that stayed with me through, you know, those those years with Icebreaker and, and Phil and Ted's is the, you know, when you take a, a really well-crafted piece of design and a really well-crafted New Zealand story to the world, it's very, very persuasive. And we shouldn't be scared as New Zealand businesses of, of doing that. Yeah, I, that resonates really well with me. There's a lot of amazing talent in this country and, and capability, but a little bit of tall poppy syndrome. And we also need to get sure. out there and, like you've done, and go overseas and start selling <laughs> selling what we do. Yeah, it's... look, I think that's right. Look, I worked with a great designer many years ago, Phil Brace, who's famous slash infamous for designing or being largely responsible for the design of Fisher & Paykel's Destroyer. And he went on to be head of design at Phil and & Ted's, and he's a hell of a good guy. And I remember having a conversation with him Back in 2006, he had just joined Phil and Ted's and I was supposedly running marketing and he said something to me and I, I think I poo-pooed it. And he said, well, what if it goes right? <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's just such a good phrase. What if it goes right? And it, that, I think, has probably been the defining philosophy for me, both personally and in business ever since. So, you know, you say, as you say, you know, you just sort of give it a whirl. You come to America, give it a whirl. And what if it goes right? I mean, I think as people, as humans and as Kiwis, we're not immune to this. We're very fond of looking at the downside and protecting the downside risk. But when we do look at what the upside can can offer, you know, it, it can be awe-inspiring. 
So uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great philosophy for New Zealand businesses, Kiwis in general, to take to the world. You have to take that leap because when when you're trying to create something that hasn't been created before or open up a new market, it, it's uncharted territory. Um, but someone's got to do it, and you, you just have to take that leap of faith. And I think we we really need to back ourselves in New Zealand, like you say, we have some some amazing talent here and capability that the, that the world went as well when we go to market. Yeah, we have. And we've also got great uh, initiatives down there like Better by Design, um, which over the last you know 15 years has been instrumental in turning the minds of business leaders to the power of design thinking inside businesses, uh, specifically the, uh, you know, the, the power of being able to uh, unlock the unmet need of customers and design for that unmet need. And I think it's uh, you know that's one of the one of the initiatives uh, in New Zealand which has stood New Zealand businesses in great stead ever since. And continues to do. Can you share any advice for like young New Zealand designers who who might want to start their own ventures or you know make it make a real positive difference in the world? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I guess I guess I could. I, I don't know that I'm the right guy to do that, but. The first thing I would say is for any younger person, and I, you know, I guess I'm saying here in your 20s, going into business, whether you're a designer or not, take the opportunity to risk plenty during those years because you know you can fall flat in your face a bunch of times. And in general, though not universally, and this has been pointed out to me when I've said this before, but in general, in your 20s, you don't have too much downside. You don't typically have dependents and mortgages and those sorts of things. So you can fall flat in your face, pick yourself back up and go again. Whereas later in life, your appetite for risk tends to dwindle a bit. So that's the first thing I'd say is take lots of take lots of commercial and design risks and career risks when you're when you're younger. I guess the the other thing I'd say is be really really focused on how to unlock an unmet need for a customer because that's where really great design starts. You know, you might have the best what you perceive to be the best idea in the world, but if nobody wants to buy it then it's just never going to see the light of day. So, you know, I'd say to young designers, you know, learn those, the particularly the four critical things, you know, how to map a customer journey, you know, how to use existing customer data and how to listen to the voice of customer, VAC, and you know, how to perform competitive analysis. I think if you can learn those four things and how to do them well, and on top of that, learn the design thinking process, then you, you'll be stood in very good stead to use your design abilities for both better and and profitably. And I mean that in both ter- both interpretations of the word. Yeah, I mean, that's really fantastic advice. The user journeys are such a powerful tool to unlock those unmet needs and, and find where they are. You know, overlaying your competitors on that user journey to see where they haven't solved a need, that's where you can find some, some gold nuggets, eh? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes they're not where you expect them to be. Almost never are. Uh, yeah. So what's next for Noho? For Noho? Noho, yeah. Well, you know, launching in the middle of <laughs> fire, brimstone, pestilence, storm and pandemic, you know, isn't the ideal platform, uh, I'd have to say. That all said, damn the torpedoes, we're, we're at it. I'd love to think that we can grow Noho into a really influential New Zealand's design engine that takes extraordinary products to the world that honor that those critical, you know, value pillars for us, Kaitiakatanga being one of them, you know, guardianship of the, of the natural world, helping the planet improve its well-being and also help improve the well-being of, of users. So I think if, you know, there are designers out there that are listening and, they, and they're intrigued by that, 
then you know we're all ears too because great ideas can come from anywhere and we'd love to take great New Zealand ideas that, that map to those two pillars to the world and that you know that that could keep us well and truly occupied long after we've hit retirement age so Noha has great chance I think of being a, an influential part of the New Zealand commercial and design community for many decades to come you've got me thinking about what what the next product could be <laughs> yes yeah well yeah that's right and what about for you Richard what what does success look like for you <laughs> Ah, well, that's a good question. Uh, well, I guess keeping with the theme, I think that if for, you know, nor my desire to unwind a life of being a polluter, I, I describe myself as a, as a recovering polluter, all of us. So success to me looks like, you know, we, we have no more raw upcycled product to work with because it's just all been used or been dealt with appropriately. But I can't see, sadly, I can't see that happening in my lifetime. Um, for me personally, I, I get inspired by these sorts of projects and I get inspired by the kinds of people I meet and, and work with. But, but actually, I spend a lot of time wondering how to spend more time in shorts. So, um, you know, this, the, 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 work, the work from home things actually suited me down to the ground. I didn't think I would, but I've truly loved just sort of sitting at my little desk working away and having little visitations from my children every kind of half an hour and, you know, pleased to go and have a water gun fight or a game of cricket for half an hour and, and, and mixing my day in that way has been just fabulous for my my personal well-being. So, you know, a lot more of that would be great, frankly. <laughs> That's a really good observation. I've, I've felt the same sort of sentiment over this lockdown period that we had here and just that slowing down of life and enjoying those moments um, kind of makes you realise the little bit of a rat race we're all stuck in and, and what's important to us as, as human beings. I really love that. Spend more time in shorts. Yeah, more time in shorts. I can't, I can't claim it, actually. My wife coined that phrase. I think it may have been as an accusation, but, uh, but I'll, I'll <laughs> you just want to spend more time in shorts. She's right, though. Yeah, maybe that's not shooting high enough, but I, you know, I'm at that stage in my life where I think about those things very keenly. Whoa, can you hear that? Yeah. That explosion is thunder. It wasn't actually an explosion. The, uh, the riots haven't arrived on my doorstep good. yeah but i mean it's just it's it's sort of it's emblematic of where america's at right now isn't it <laughs> now i've got did, thunder, thunder did it give you a bit of a flight? no no i saw it coming i can see it rolling in from a from distance yeah. so yeah um, hey richard it's been really really awesome to to talk to you is there anything else you want to add anything else i want to add I think we've covered off some interesting ground here. Good questions, Oliver. Thank you. The one I think you, you talked about previously was um, was resource decoupling, and it's something I've been doing a, a lot of thinking about. You know, how do we decouple economic progress from environmental degradation? And I think the one thing I'd like to add is is that it is a critical pathway for us as humans, but for us as businesses as well into the future. And the more businesses that are thinking about their part in resource decoupling. And by that, I mean reducing the rate of resource use per unit of economic activity, dematerialization, less material energy, water, land resources for the same economic output, the better. And if anyone's listening that is curious about that, I'd encourage them to go read Tim Jackson's um, Prosperity Without Growth, because he breaks it down very eloquently and stresses the importance of differentiating between you know, relative and absolute decoupling. Um, and absolute decoupling is really what we have to shoot for. So that's my that's my final soapbox moment. Thanks, Richard. It's been a pleasure <laughs> talking with you.
<laughs> you too, Oliver. Thanks. And I look, look forward to um, look forward to seeing where Noho goes. And I'm going to jump online and see if I can buy myself one. I was just sitting here in my old life chair. It's done me good for about 15 years, but um, it's starting to fall to bits now. So it's about time for an upgrade. Oh, I think we can probably help you with that. <laughs> Cheers, Richard. Oh, you have a good afternoon, and um, see you around. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks for your time.